Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the host of the Sendcast and the managing director of B Squared. If this is your first Sendcast, then welcome to the podcast. This is a really simple podcast. We are all here to learn about special educational needs and disability. And in this episode, we're discussing executive function skills and the impact on these of being neurodivergent. My guest this week is Victoria Bagnall, the co-founder of Connections in Mind. And Victoria is a neurodiverse teacher who has specialized on raising awareness of executive function. The Sencast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are here to help schools to show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We cover a wide range of abilities across England, Scotland and Wales. So we're not just doing English curriculum, we're doing lots more. And if you are a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, then we can help. And did you know you can use B-Squares assessments software for more than just pupils with SEND? We have now updated B-Squares so you can use it with all pupils in one system, saving you time, saving you money and simplifying the whole process around data and showing progress. It's much simpler. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and we, I will take you through our assessment software. Now, let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing how being neurodivergent impacts executive function skills. This week, my guest is Victoria Bagnall, the co-founder of Connections in Mind. Victoria is a neurodivergent teacher who has specialized in raising awareness of executive function. As well as running Connections in Mind, she's also a training provider for California Berkeley, Imperial College London and Cheltenham Ladies College. And she's also a regular speaker at conferences around neurodiversity. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So my experience of executive function in education is that it is simply expected. For example, when pupils arrive at secondary school, they're expected to have all of these organisational skills, the ability to pay attention throughout the school day in an environment which is very different to what they've been used to and so much more. Yet these skills aren't really taught. Mm. No, they're not taught. And, And this is one of the big problems that we have around executive function skills is that often it's presumed that young people will implicitly develop these skills and our system is really set up to celebrate those who have abnormally strong executive function skills. And so my work is around raising awareness around this important point, helping teachers to understand that actually if we help everybody to develop their executive function skills, everyone can access learning better so we can be far much more inclusive in our school environments. Definitely. One of the things I find really interesting about executive function is I am 40-something years old, and I think I only came across the term five years ago or so. And yet I've been doing it the my entire life, and it's expected of me. And it's, it's, it's when my daughters, I think, went to secondary school, it came across this organisation, all this lot. I was like, oh, oh, it's in the curriculum somewhere, isn't it? It's somewhere in the national curriculum somewhere. And where would it be? Where would it be? must be PSHE. Not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not at all. And it's so frustrating because if you look through, and I did an exercise once looking at the curriculum levels back in the days when we had levels, national curriculum levels, and I went through and I looked and I highlighted all the incidences of needing executive function skills in order to achieve these levels, but I could find anywhere in the curriculum itself 
that this would, these were being taught. Again, it's just this implicit, implied expectation. And it comes from an understanding that we've developed a society that these are character traits. If we struggle to manage our time, that we are, and some character education schools of thought say that this is moral character trait. Um, if we struggle to manage time, which I would wholeheartedly disagree with because it's all to do with our prefrontal cortex and our executive functioning. But there's so many different elements of executive functioning and being organized that we value very highly as a society, but we think of them as character traits and not as cognitive processes that we can develop just like we can learn to play tennis or to ride a bike or to speak a language. It develops in exactly the same way. It is actually interesting. I've been going through my old school reports and I Reality learn. I've struggled with a lot of these, and it is it is literally it was always my fault, mm-hmm. and it was described in various ways of. I always say the word unorganized, even though it's disorganized. I believe, don't know why, but it is disorganized, and various other things which were my fault, and yeah, I never did homework. There are so many things I didn't do. And it was always, I was just told off for it, but no one actually explained to me. Oh yeah, you need to do this. Oh, actually, you could be bad at this. Perhaps you need some support. Perhaps we could do this. No. No. And I know we've got much better. I know now we're not in black and white anymore. We have got much better with these things. But it is just purely expected. And if it isn't, it is It is exactly that. It's a character trait. Mm. Mm. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is how it was always described. Mm. If you could just focus more, they'd do much better. Well, how do you focus more? What does that involve? What skills do I need to be able to focus in a lesson? And and what kind of brain state do I need to be in? Because This all links in very much to the understanding of different brain states. And when we're dysregulated, when we're living in our fight, flight or freeze part of our brain, our amygdala responses, then we are less able to engage our prefrontal cortex where the executive functions are found. And so we're less able to pay attention. So that's why you get people who, for whatever reason, they've had some kind of psychologically traumatic experience. And that can be severely traumatic in terms of kind of abuse or neglect, or it can be just a school trauma. So being bullied or not feeling understood in the school environment, that can dysregulate young people so that they can't access their prefrontal cortex. And then they exhibit behaviours that look like they're being, they're not motivated, that they're not paying attention, that they're not behaving, they're not towing the line. And, and it's, it's misinterpreted as naughtiness, when actually it's, it's, a, it's a difference and a disability in some instances. Can you add the term immature into that list as well? <laughs> if I had a tally chart for how often that appeared in my reports as a child, he's immature oh. and I'm going, I'm a child. What, exactly. what, what do you mean? Exactly. What does that mean? When you're telling a nine-year-old he's immature, it's like, I don't understand. Yeah, but this is a really interesting point. And, and one that I often come across in, in the teaching, tra- teacher training that we're doing. And when we show the slide of brain development and how long it takes for the brain to develop and knowing that the prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to fully develop, our human brains don't fully develop until our late 20s. But our prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to develop. So when you're telling someone at nine, that they're immature, actually what you're telling them is that they're normal and that everyone else is doing a really good job of towing the line and complying with what's expected of them because they probably have abnormally strong executive functions. And so it's really unhelpful to tell someone they're immature. Actually, they're probably performing typically for, for the brain development at that age. 
Is there any research in the whole Summerborn and executive function then? Oh, I love that. I, love it. I get to ask all these phrasing questions. And I throw them at you and you were going. Oh, um, no, no, I did. You just glitched <laughs> slightly. So maybe just ask the question again. So, so I, I'm, I'm a July birthday, end of July. Mm. So I was just wondering, is there any research around kind of that expectation yes. around executive function and the Summerborn? Absolutely. Absolutely. <gasps> and it's so fascinating. So what we do know, there's research that has been shown executive functions are very strongly linked and executive function challenges are strongly linked to ADHD traits. And so a lot of people that struggle with their attention, concentration, uh, organization skills, etc., have a diagnosis of ADHD. And what you can see very clearly from the data is that those children who are July born or they come, they're very, very young for their year, tend to more, are more likely to get an ADHD diagnosis than those who are older for their year. And, and that is, you can statistically show that. And so that's clear evidence that this is about misunderstanding the development of our human brains. And actually, if we could have a more inclusive school environment, which understood the natural development of our brains, we wouldn't kind of expect children to do things which were outside of their developmental trajectory, which is not linear, by the way. And a lot of people do think that it is. (laughs) Who knew development wasn't linear? (laughs) Who knew? Exactly. And so that's why I tear my hair out when I see my my daughter's reports. I've got three girls. And I see the meeting expectations, not meeting expectations or all that rubbish, which I can't even re- recite because I just can't even look at it. But whose expectations and and why? And, and they're not on some kind of lo- a linear development trajectory. So, yeah, personally, I much prefer levels, as you could probably tell. But being more objective about what we're looking at and not just saying, oh, well, the, the average child can do this at this age well why and and how is that different and how is it how is it broken down into kind of modular chunks of what they can do because maths is predominantly a working memory skill and in order to be good at maths we have to have really strong working memory especially at the higher levels when you're doing algebra even when you show your work you've still got to be able to hold the information in your head Then you also need to use your cognitive flexibility, which is also an executive function in order to be able to manipulate that information and then to think about, you know, changing X from one side to the other or whatever you're doing. And and so what we're doing is when we're examining maths, we're examining working memory, especially when it's like a mental arithmetic, because that's all under time pressure. And so we're, we're examining, again, processing speed at that time. So I'm on a mission to, to help people to think about actually why don't we just break this down we can measure working memory let's measure that that's fine that's fine let's measure people's working memory but let's not conflate that with their ability to do maths because that is a different skill set let's separate out these skills in that way so I'm getting a little off topic there but <laughs> it's a passion area of mine I'm just going to hold up to you one of my school reports All I don't right. think you can really yeah, yeah. see it yeah but it says on here average mark 72 percent my attainment Two, one being the best. My effort, C. Mm. My exam mark, 100%. And it's like, and he's still not, it basically just says, I'm not doing the work in lessons, I'm distracted. But yeah, I got, it's just, you literally, I look at it now and go, wow, I, I can really see a lot more that I can really see. And, but what I love about my reports, which I really think we miss out, is now you just get these numbers. Above, mm. below, expected, mm-hmm. unexpected. 
you don't really get anything about your child. So I can look back at my reports and I can really see what they meant. And I can reflect on it and go, yeah, that is still true and things like that. Mm. I look at my daughter's reports. It's like, oh, yeah, she got a two there or she got a three there. What does it mean? Doesn't mean doesn't tell me anything. Doesn't tell me why or anything. Mm. It doesn't help at all. Whereas looking back through these, I got a real sense of what I was about back then. And some bits I'm going, I've really worked on that. I know I've got that now. But other bits I'm going, yeah, I'm exactly the same 30-odd years on and I haven't changed in some of these areas, yeah. which is just fascinating. But that's fascinating, but it's it's also to do with, you know, the way that the brain learns and develops, right? So there'll be some areas that for your job and, and what you're interested in now would have been absolutely essential that you develop skills in those areas. And so you'll have been motivated to develop skills in that those areas. But there'll be some other ones, which, you know, for me, it's around kind of tidying things. I'm really bad at keeping things tidy. Like I just, I have to work really, really hard at it because it doesn't really impact my life too much. I have a wonderful husband who's very good at tidying. I didn't just marry him because of that, but He's he's really, really good at tidying. So he does that and I don't feel like the need to work on my tidying. I know I could, but it's not it's not something I'm motivated for. And so it's really interesting when we're thinking about these areas, it's it's not saying, oh well, that's just me, that's how I am. Yes, it is part of how our brains develop, which is what makes our personality, but we also all have always have to remember that the brain is plastic and that we all can develop skills. That doesn't mean we should. But it's just that that's available to us and we can develop these areas if we want to and if we're motivated for it. And, and the brain learns much better when we're motivated too. So, yeah, so it's, it's, I think it's about celebrating our differences, but also recognising that if we do want to, we can change. And, and then not in a way that's kind of a judgmental, oh, well, this is an easy thing, you should just do it. It's more along the lines of this is something you can develop if you should want to, like learning French or learning to ride a bike or all these other things that you might want to do. So in there, you talked about motivation. That's the thing is I hated school. Secondary school, I just pure hated. Mm-hmm. College, more or less the same. However, since then, all I've ever done is learn. Mm-hmm. So it's not learning. No. It's how it is taught, what is taught. Anything about that is the issue. It's something about that school. And it's relevance and motivation to where I want to go is probably a big thing around that. And I, we've done this on the podcast a few times, talking about why am I learning this? What is the benefit? What is that relevance for me? Because if it's relevant, I'm going to pay attention. If mm-hmm. I see this as no relevance to me, then I am just going to go find something which I'm interested in, in that somewhere else in this classroom. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can all relate to that as adults and as teachers do. I mean, the amount of times where I do a teacher training and I, I go around the class and I look at the class, the, the group, and I look and I see who's not engaged. And, and I relate that back, you know, some of you for this, for you, this isn't relevant, you know, this isn't something you're interested in. And so you're, you know, looking out the window and so it's exactly the same for the students that we work with. And we mustn't think that they're just kind of these cups to be knowledge to be poured into. Actually, it's learning is a process by which, you know, they have to be motivated and engage. It's a two way process. In fact, more on their, their aspect than on ours. And we, you know, get up on stage and do a dance and you know, be really engaging, but that might not be engaging for that particular child. And we can't always catch every single one. And so I, I have a dream of, of an education system which allows young people to follow what they're interested on and to choose their learning and to 
yes, we can kind of guide and develop that, but we can allow young people to follow their own learning journey. Because like you said, learning is, is different from school. And currently school is a place where I would say 20 to 30% of the children that are in those school gates don't really want to be there because of an SEND or because they've got other priorities in their life. And if we can create a place where they want to come to, where they get amazing experiences and they're learning and they're, they're doing things outside of a classroom with their hands, then we can create you know, a generation of people who are problem solvers, who can maximize the use of their brains rather than just seeing them as little cups to pour knowledge into you which, to be honest, most of the time, most of it just falls out (laughs) because they're just not interested in absorbing it. How dare you say my daughters are not problem-solving? They both know how to problem-solve a seven-mark question. (laughs) 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 There is is no problem-solving in secondary. There is no project work. It is how do I answer a six-mark question Mm -hmm. on this topic in geography. Mm -hmm. That is what school's about. And it's, it's, it's not great. And the love of learning, you've heard me talk about this a lot on the podcast, projects, you get stuck into them, they're meaty, you enjoy them, you learn about a topic, you learn about yourself, you find out you don't have the skills to do something, you actually have to learn those skills mm-hmm. to complete your project, you have a reason to because you want to, that's gone because it's not easy to mark, mm. it's not easy to assess on a national level, so we don't do that, mm. essays have gone, things like that have gone, now I have heard that exams or there's a load of things around it and I was like actually that's a fair point but overall projects not being in secondary school is a big negative to me mm, absolutely absolutely I think what's interesting there as well is that you need a lot of executive functioning to do projects and so what we're doing by taking out project work from schools is we are taking away the opportunity for teachers to teach these executive function skills because if you don't have a long-term project to work on how can you expect young people to develop these skills. So we're always talking about autonomy. So for me at home, the thing, kind of things that I do in order to help build executive function skills is when we're going on a, a family holiday, I get the kids sat down at the table and I'm like, right, okay, we're going to this place. Let's have a look on Google Maps. How long is it going to take us to get there? What time do we need to leave? What are we going to need to pack? Okay, you're all in charge of your packing. Even my four-year-old, she's in charge of her packing. I go through and check she's got everything she needs. But it is in an age-appropriate way. My 11-year-old, when she was nine, she could cook a whole roast dinner by herself because we had developed those skills over time, not suddenly just <laughs> given her a recipe and off you go, so that she could manage her risk of, of using an oven and a stove, that she understood about timings and, and things like that. And if we don't give young people the opportunity to develop these skills, then how on earth are they supposed to be independent people? If you just expect them to regurgitate information and knowledge, that's not necessarily what we need in the face of robots that can do that very well, as AI is now proving. <laughs> I just wonder how many people have just stopped and gone, a nine-year-old cooking a roast dinner. <laughs> that's not fair. I want that. <laughs> but but that's the executive function part. That's the bit that I think as parents, we do have very busy lives. So we, we don't always have the time to slow down and help teach these skills Mm -hmm. to our children. We just go, oh, I'll get on with it. And it's things like that. So, and we were going completely off tangent, but you brought that straight back to executive function really well. So well done. (laughs) So I talked about kind of what kind of stereotypical executive function looks like at secondary school. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to bring that, you've got to get your homework done in time, get your diary signed. Mm -hmm. 
You've got to have, make sure you're ready to learn mm-hmm. with all the right equipment. <laughs> you've got to make sure you've got the right PE kit. Yeah. Which, all of that stuff is kind of, you just take for granted and you tell your child off for not doing it. And they get detentions when they don't do it. Yeah. But what does that look like at primary school? What does that executive function? Because you don't have that level on that children because it's in the classroom, it's all there. So what is it? what kind of the signs? That's age appropriate, right? So those kind of things that you're talking about, those organisational skills and time management, they don't develop into secondary school age. So that's what we'd kind of expect. But at primary school age, you're looking at more around the emotional regulations and attention pieces, right? So you're looking at being able to regulate your emotions, not have become dysregulated or what some people might call a tantrum in uh, in class and, and to be able to engage. You're looking at being able to sustain your attention for the 20 minutes that the task might take you to do to sit nicely on the carpet, all of these things. That's all to do with executive functioning. And and in any classroom, when you go into a reception class, you'll see some who are very able to do that. And they can sit there nicely with their hands folded in their laps and they do good sitting and they get rewarded by the teacher. And there'll be some who will be up on the up of their seats, off being distracted by all sorts of running around. And and the teacher and the TA will spend a lot of time just getting them back to sit nicely on the carpet. And so it's these kind of kind of things. And, and what the research has very clearly shown is that children who enter school who have strong executive functioning, and you can measure executive functioning at that age, go on to do much better in their final examination. So you can track it all the way through. But they also perform better at primary school tests or SATs and various other things as well. So we can see that from a very, very early age that these differences in executive functioning have an impact. But again, just rewarding and praising children for good sitting is not good enough you need to then teach them how to sit carefully and and what to do when they're feeling distracted and how to let their all of their emotions out in in a safe and controlled way and without having a tantrum and I use that in inverted commas because I prefer dysregulated becoming dysregulated and so if we don't, if we just reward or punish the desired or undesirable behavior, we're not developing these skills. And if we see the skills, then we can develop them in exactly the same way, develop every other skill in schools. We don't necessarily do that through praise and through, through punishment. It needs to be done explicitly and it needs to be shown exactly what needs to be done. And that's, again, that's different for every child. So what, what helps you to be, become self-regulated or to to self-regulate will be different to me and that's different but it's about having awareness of all the different techniques we can use testing them out in a controlled environment and working out what works for us so that we can become self-regulated I didn't learn what my strategy was until I was 40 okay imagine if I'd learned that in reception imagine if I'd known how to regulate myself when I was five or six Imagine how different that my life might have been in that way. So that's what we're talking about at primary school. So before I go into what I actually want to say, I'm guessing you probably shouldn't, you're not recommending that when my wife is shouting because I've done something wrong, I shouldn't just return, say to her, you're just being dysregulated. <laughs> probably no. won't go down well. No, that's, that's not the best way. The best way, in fact, is to recognise her frustration or whatever it is and to say how hard it is. And you have to do that genuinely. So you have to regulate yourself because often you'll be triggered by her dysregulation. So you need to self-regulate first and then you need to go in there with, you seem really frustrated. I know that's really tough. And that's it. Leave it there. Not No but, no what, no if, no nothing. Just that. Let her self-regulate. 
be there, give her a hug, and then talk about what happened so that you can avoid those confrontations or those difficult things in the future. But that's the process you need to go through. But isn't that more or less what you should also do in the classroom? Absolutely. <laughs> it's exactly the same. Exactly. Although I'm talking about my wife and it's fiction, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, obviously I do nothing wrong, but it is that same thing. You don't just say you're doing this. You kind of have to recognise where it is and understand it. And also know that if they're having a tantrum, air quotes mm-hmm. again, you might not be, you might be quite as regulated as you would have been. Mm-hmm. So you've got to acknowledge that yes. as well. Cool. Now, where I was going is you said the word modelling. Mm. And modelling, apart from clothes modelling and anything else like that, I never, ca- I never came across the term modelling. In reality, in we're talking about emotions, behaviour, social all of that lot until I started doing this podcast. Mm. So for me, I, I didn't learn about this till I was like 40. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, modelling. So, yes, my child doesn't learn it unless someone shows them how to do it. And that's what being, ah, it's like when they're young and you talk lots, you're modelling talking. Ah, learning that for their entire life, yes. Oh, I wish someone had explained this to me. <laughs> This helps a lot. But it's that modeling is we don't think about it is you expect I have I have my expectations of you are higher. That's great. Yeah, I heard that a lot as a child. But how have you taught me what those expectations are and how do I do them? Mm-hmm. You can't just have an expectation of me and then expect and then don't help me get there or don't show me how. That doesn't work. Exactly. And the best teachers that I've seen kind of deploying this executive function approach and, and developing these skills are constantly talking about their own executive function skills. So they will come in in the morning and let's say they've got a two-year-old at home who's had a disturbed night and they'll say, class, I'm, re- I'm really struggling with my executive functioning today, especially my working memory because I was up all night and I haven't slept well. We know that sleep affects our executive functions, don't we? Okay, I'm going to need your help with anything to do with working memory today because I know that's the one that's going to be really weak for me today brilliant okay then the children are learning two things first it's naturally natural and normal to have executive function challenges which it is we do training all the time and I have not yet found a teacher who doesn't have executive function challenges everybody has them it's natural and normal to have executive function challenges we're talking about what impacts them and sleep is one thing stress is another nutrition is another connection love and belonging calm all sorts of different things can impact our executive functions but then also talking about the self-advocacy when our executive functions are low there are things that we can do we can call on our class to help us with our working memory because that is something they can help with oh miss you've forgotten to do that and you know it's have a little bit of a giggle and you know it's all very relaxed and very kind of supportive and so that's the best way of developing these things and so teachers then need to have a, a different approach about how a lot of teachers they want to come across as very professional and that they don't forget anything wrong and that they you know are the fount of all knowledge but actually that doesn't help young people when not being real we're not being vulnerable uh, in front of them and you have to have a very strong relationship with young people in order to do that you couldn't just walk in as a cup teacher and start doing that because that you don't have that relationship but if you have a strong relationship with young people you can model these things and you can show them how to be kinder to themselves about these challenges so that they can then access their prefrontal cortex more because you're more likely to be able to access your prefrontal cortex if you're not stressed and worried about what everyone else is thinking about you if you're going to let yourself down. 
Definitely. I think it is really important. That modelling, it's just, as I hear about it more, I'm going, this is just, yeah, it's, this is everywhere. And it's an opportunity. So how, how you have your lessons, how you spend your time in that classroom, is you can create opportunities to help develop those skills. And I think the whole accepting other people's points of view and all those sorts is a big part of this. So you're doing a topic on the Romans. What do we want to learn? And actually, yes, there's always be the first three children. You can literally, most teachers will know the first three children who will, who will shout out what they want to do. But they also would probably name the three who will never shout out, mm-hmm. who will have to eke out of them or just – but you, you, you're giving every child a lesson in that. You can give every child an opportunity. They're part of that thing. and They might come up with a suggestion, but they might not have really thought it through, and you can help them have – but that whole – actually having a conversation and thinking about things and also adding to other people's points of view. Mm-hmm. All of that to me is part of executive function. Absolutely. You're so, so clear. And one of the things that people often get confused about is why if you have executive function challenges, so if you're neurodivergent, because it tends to be, if you're neurodivergent, you have executive function challenges, you really struggle to write cohesive essays that really kind of concise and, and follow and answer the question. And that's because what we're talking about with executive function is not just emotional regulation, it's not just the organization, but it's also filtering. It's about taking everything that you know on something and filtering out the salient points to put into an essay. It's about having a topic of the Romans and being able to choose one thing that you want to put your hand up and ask the teacher or say that you want to do because it's just overwhelming all the things that you want to know, all the kind of areas that you could go down. So the, yeah, so this filtering out, this being able to prioritize what's important, being able to not just out out the first thing that comes into your mind, but kind of think through the process and, and, and have a process for that is all about executive functioning too. Yeah, absolutely on point. As Victoria was saying that, I was laughing and having a huge realization moment. I've talked on the podcast before about how I don't live in a paper world. My dad worked for IBM. We had a computer at home. When I was in junior school, we had an IBM PC and I could do my homework on an IBM PC before they even got into most people's homes. So we were ahead of the schools. It was so much fun. But I would kind of have almost like verbal diarrhea, as we, I now call it a brain dump, mm-hmm. with, through my fingers. And then I would read it all and go, oh, that's rubbish. And real, or, or I realized as I do this, I kind of hit the same point three different times in three different ways, but there was in three different sections and I reorganize it all. Mm-hmm. So I was doing this at secondary school in Word or Work, Microsoft Works as, as it was back then, mm-hmm. and kind of just reorganizing it on the screen. Whereas at school, I was supposed to be doing this in paper and it made no sense because it was always all over the place. I'm not writing it out five different times. And even now, I will do a full-on brain dump of what is in my head into Word. And I can fill up 20 to 30 pages. And it's in no order. Then I have to think about the order. And as I think about it and I work out that story, because I'm reading it all, I can work out what. But my, my way of writing is very different to most people's who seem to have this natural ability to go, I'm going to start here. I'm going to in two pages' time, I'm going to end it. How? How do you do that? I do not know. I will write 30 pages. I could end up with 40 or I couldn't go down to 20. But I have to do this brain dump first. And it is that this is what's in my head. This is what I want to get down. But at that moment, I don't know what's important. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That comes later. When I can see it all, I can then actually go, what's important? 
you know, my, in a typical neurodivergent, I just kind of off on a little bit of a tangent, but just relating something to, I also do some tutoring on the side of my general work. And I was working with a young man this weekend who is doing his A-levels and he's doing his geography A-levels. And he, he has extra time for his geography level, but we worked out he had 25 minutes to write a full essay with five paragraphs about a particular topic. 25 minutes. And he has extra time in order to do this. And if you're neurodivergent, that's just impossible because you cannot get everything down that you want to say on the topic and filter out everything else that's not relevant and put it together in a cohesive argument. And so he is being set up to fail just because of the way that his brain works. He can, he, if you asked him about the topic, he'd tell you everything you needed to know. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's just the way that he presents information. And with time, he could do that himself. And that's why things like chat GTP are so brilliant. I don't know if you've used it, but for me, like, it's so great. You give it a few instructions of what to say and da-da, there we go. And it can have references and all this. And of course, you then, you wouldn't then just use that and pass that as your own work. You then go in and look at it and and embellish it and, and check references and maybe add your own references and things like that. But it helps to filter out all the distractions and all the, the other kind of ideas that we as neurodivergent people might have and put it into something that can be digested by other people. And it gives it, a, it always gives it a structure. Yeah. It gives you the, the, this is the preferred structure across the whole of the world yes. is you start here, you go here, you add this bit, extra bit in here and you end here. And it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. But that's the thing, the whole, you've literally, no one has explained that the way I could do things is like an executive neurodivergent thing and that's life and I'm stuck with it. No one has ever said that to me. That's, that is fascinating. The way I've got a colleague who, who, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to tell him, you know, you do that, yeah, that's because of this and that's this. He'll be like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. You've had a light bulb moment. So at Connections uh-huh. in Mind, we talk about these light bulb moments and we, we really think it's a different way of looking at so many of the challenges we face as human beings. And once we're able to look at these things from a different perspective, it enables us to find solutions. Because if now you're you're going and you're thinking, okay, this is to do with filtering out, prioritizing, maybe you'll develop strategies that can help you a bit better rather than just thinking, oh, this is just me and this is how it works. You are, there are ways you can improve. I am much better at writing essays than I ever used to be, but it did take until I was at least past 28 when my brain was fully mature in order to be able to do that. So again, asking young people to write essays is beyond the capacity of their brain. It's only those people who have abnormally strong executive functioning that will be able to do that in an effective way. Again, why the system currently is discriminatory against the masses. <laughs> I, I remember even back in primary school, the structure of my stories were horrible. I'd obviously start something and just meander off. And where I started and where I was going to go end was completely changed halfway through because I had a new idea which I wanted to explore and then it go, oh, actually, I've written two pages now. I need to end it. And I just kind of just ended it because I had to end. And I, and I know that I got, my, I got ripped apart from my story writing and stuff. And it's like, and I never knew what I was kind of doing wrong. I, okay, I knew what I was doing wrong. I was writing bad stories, but I didn't know why. Mm. And executive function, this yeah, thing that everyone has you, to have, yeah. everyone needs to learn about, but no one really knows about. And imagine if your teacher had been able to identify that way back and you had gone through school with a teacher and set of teachers that understood this was the challenge for you and could help you develop strategies. Maybe, and this is just maybe, you wouldn't still be having that challenge now. You've been able to work out a way to communicate in the way that everyone else expects you 
to communicate whether you wanted to you know or not and again that's you know you don't always have to conform with what society wants but you know sometimes it is helpful for what we want to achieve so I, that's the, the crux of it is if all teachers could know about executive functioning and executive functioning uh, executive function skills I think that they could be kinder to them stud- their students and kinder to themselves which mean that we have a whole new generation of young people who whose brains can develop optimally because they're not constantly being punished and and misunderstood about these particular elements of of their brain development definitely and it's also there are so many tools out there which can really really help and my favorite one is simply an alarm on your phone Mm -hmm. so my daughter is a nightmare for getting her diary signed she always remembers it on Monday morning as she's leaving for school and she leaves for school early for some weird reason. So she comes into our room really early. Can you sign the diary? So it worked for a while. I got her to set an alarm Sunday evening, like half six. And she, for a while, would come along and get her diary signed on Sunday evening. It worked much better. And she didn't have a stress in the morning. There was no chance of the detention because she didn't get this signed. I found that everything came through via an app. And the sim, this paper, signing a paper document is just a hangover from last century. It's a whole different thing. <laughs> but it was the thing. So it's, and I've seen there's lots of apps. My daughter, my other daughter uses organization apps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she'll put her school timetable into an app on her phone. Mm-hmm. She'll put in her homework on there and things like that. And she puts it when she's due, when it's due and things like that. So there are lots of little tools which you can use to help. And, I think the more, if someone, especially as they get into secondary school, the more you can give them the tools to support themselves, the better. And the more opportunities, so like your holidays, we do that. I do find with my children, if they understand how far, where, how long, the weather, what we're doing, what it's going to look like, the more comfortable they are about the holiday. Uh, but also the more they kind of know what they need to bring. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will keep you occupied in a four-hour journey. I don't know what will keep my daughters. One of them will just be happy on their own. The other gets very bored. But if they have that opportunity, they can actually think about what I want to take. And it helps them. It empowers them. And I think this is the thing, is that too much, you know, we've, we've gone through this period of like, or child labour, and we they must protect childhood. And that's gone the other way in that children then can't have any responsibilities and they don't have any autonomy. But actually, they can still have a, a wonderful childhood, but still develop their executive function skills. And we don't need to be their prefrontal cortex for them. It won't develop if we are being it for them. So we need to give those opportunities in a controlled way, but to, to always be on the lookout. And as young as you know, two or three children can be helping sort laundry out. They won't put the washing machine on, but they can help sort the different colours and they can work that out. They can be helping to lay the table. They can be doing all sorts of little things, chores around the house, which save parents time, but also help them to develop these these skills and to to do things that aren't preferred tasks as well. Because sometimes doing chores isn't that fun. That's why they're called chores. But we have to do them in order to kind of coexist and to get on in life. So there are so many things that we can do, but if we're just conscious about it and focus on focusing on building that autonomy, it's really important. And it always, always comes down to modelling. And it is, it's, you might say to them, I don't like doing this either, Mm -hmm. but what happens if we don't do this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's that sort of thing. It's not 
kind of doing all the housework when they're not there. So they just see you not doing it. It's you want them to see you doing the housework. You want them to register that mum is busy right now because she's doing that. Dad is busy now because he's doing that. Yeah, so they know things are going on around the home. It's not some magic fairy, although most of our husbands, most of us dads believe there is a magic fairy in our house in many ways that just you put something on the table and it's gone. It just comes back and it's clean in the cupboard. It's amazing. I am a bit rubbish at home, I admit. And my wife will admit more than that. But we've got to make everyone aware that we don't just do it and it happens. Effort is put in. And it, it, that's a weird thing for me is, is there are things I don't, I don't like doing any housework, okay? No one, I don't think, really does. There are a few weird people like, oh, I love hoovering. <laughs> and what I say to my kids is I hate it. But my wife wants me to do it, and by me doing it makes her happy. So that is my reasoning. So therefore, I will get on with it. So it's not that it's an enjoyable job. It needs doing. And if I don't do it, my wife has to. She's already doing a lot. She's got this, she's got this. It has to be done, and it's just that's just life. Absolutely. And, and I think it's just, you know, again, modelling, like you say, modelling, talking these three things through, and helping them to, to find a way. And, and what I tend to find is, okay, so for example, if I've got three kids, we've had a bad morning getting into the car and we're late for school, right? Instead of, you know, blowing my lid, which, you know, I might have done in the past, you know, come on, get in the car, what's going on? I still remain calm as much as I can, get everybody in the car. And once we're kind of down the road and, and on the way, just calmly say, okay, that wasn't great this morning, was it? What, what happened? What went wrong? Um, and how can we learn and do better next time? And they have so many great ideas. It's great. I put it back to them and they come out with all these ideas of what we can do and they put them into practice. If they have come up with the ideas, they are so much more likely to do them than if we kind of say, right, what we're doing tomorrow is we're going to do this and like roll their eyes or whatever. Whereas if they've come up with the ideas, they'll be more likely to put them into practice. And then we just need to help them to do that over six iterations. So one of the key premises that we have at Connections in Mind is the research that shows that habits aren't formed overnight. You don't just suddenly work up, wake up being able to do these things. You need to do it over the long term. And research shows it's about 60 iterations of a task. So that's two months if you do something daily. And if you do something weekly, it's over a year. So it does take a long time to form new habits. And our responsibility as parents is to help them come up with a strategy that's going to work for them and then support them to keep doing it over 60 iterations and that's why schools are such a great place to do this because they have routines already that they can build on to help do these things and so we need to make use of that and and we can do that at home too i think that not reacting in the moment is a very hard thing to do we do well i do a lot of reflection with my kids either in the evening or over the weekend and a lot of the time, I ask, especially like if the morning's gone badly, you know, especially at second, that's gone into their day. And you know their day started off badly, but it got better. And you're like, and when did that start? Cool. And why did I do that? Cool. And why did it do that? Cool. Because actually it all started because of this one little thing. And it's that realisation that sometimes things snowball. And it's never intentional, generally. It's just the way that by you not doing that at that point meant I didn't get to do that, which meant you wanted me to do that, but... It's re- helping them reflect on that when they're calm, when they're completely disconnected, when they're not going to shout at you because you ruined their day, mm-hmm. but a completely different time. It really helps. My daughter, who's just over half term, was doing some geography 
a work experience. And then on the other day, we did some geography field work. And she was telling me how tired she was, but how much she really enjoyed it. So I said, okay, so we spent the whole four, last four days, you've just done geography stuff. Really hands-on. She loved it. And I thought, if you were doing your other subjects, how do you feel? She went, oh, rubbish. I went, so that tells you something about your future career then, doesn't it? And that ability to reflect, kids aren't born with either, is, 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 is reflection in executive function. Yeah, it's metacognition. And it's one of the, la- the latest skills to develop, so it doesn't fully develop right at the end period. So that's why it's very difficult for young people to self-reflect. And, and if you think about it from your own reflections as well, just think of kind of all the kind of risky behaviours and things that you did when you're kind of an adolescent and early 20s and when towards the end of your 20s, you're much more able to be self-aware, to, Im- to, to think about the impact of your behaviour on other people and so on and so forth. And often we project our adult ability to be metacognitive onto young people, but actually they can't do it. (laughs) And so helping and guiding and supporting them to make those reflections is the best that we can do to help them to develop that skill. But they won't be able to have that kind of helicopter view of themselves and see the impact of their behavior naturally until their late 20s. Wow. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love learning. But that's the thing is, my daughter, when you sit there and frame it in a certain way, she'll, you'll hear a surprise in her mm. voice and she'll sit there and go, ah. And you, you just know that she's just had a big realisation and then I walk off and I leave her with that. And it, it, it does form into things. She's, she's, got a, she's now got, at secondary school, she had no direction. Since A-level, she has a direction. Mm-hmm. And you can just ask her questions and she'll give you the answers and you, and you can kind of repeat the answers back to her and it will help her think about And it is just fascinating. And yeah, I could not reflect. I remember reflection for me came, yeah, late twenties, early thirties is when I really started. I took that as I was, a, I became a dad in my late twenties. Mm-hmm. So I took it as I'm a dad now. I'm thinking back to my childhood. It was a me being not actually that, that part of my brain finally fully developed. I actually went, Okay, I almost like I have options. How do I want to be a parent? Mm. Oh, mm. I, I watched a lot. We watched, watched a lot of Super Nanny. Oh, yes. And Super Nanny was really so many things I've learned from that. And it was a, a fail to prepare, prepare to fail is basically how I can sum up her whole thing. That if you don't put the work in beforehand, so if you're not doing the modeling, mm-hmm. you're not doing that work, you're not helping them go like, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, this is all the stuff we're doing, now go pack. If you just say go pack, it'll go completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get really stressed and angry that you've got to do it with your own self. But actually, if you do all the work beforehand, all those extra work, in reality, they are much more involved and they'll do it the way you want it and the way it's needed and be much more. When you go through, you check and go, yeah, yeah, got it right. Rather than they've got, they've, hang on, all she packed was a Barbie doll. <laughs> she hasn't even put a single bit of clothing in yet. And then you have to, it's that sort of thing is, Put a bit of extra work in beforehand, do the modelling, do all this lot, the rest will come. Whereas if you don't do it that way, you've just got a lot of stress from everyone. Absolutely. That's so, so true. And I think that's a really great way to summarise all of this, really, that we've been talking about. Is you know, it's, it's all about being explicit about these things and, and showing young people how to do it. Because when you do, they can but also remembering that there is a natural and normal development of the prefrontal cortex and not expecting too much of young people too young. 
and being kind and compassionate to them when things go wrong, because it is part of their development, just the same as you wouldn't shame someone for, you know, mispronouncing, you know, a French verb or something like that, you would just help them to learn how to pronounce it correctly, or, or, you know, failing to hit an ace, you know, in a tennis match, you would then just show them how to do it. Because shaming and punishing people doesn't help them to develop skills, it only makes them feel worse. And actually, makes executive functioning worse because then you're in your dysregulated part of your brain unable to access your prefrontal cortex so yeah let's move away from shame and punishment let's move towards co-constructing strategies that really work for young people and supporting them to develop them into habits over the six iterations and remember don't say well your younger brother can or your sister (laughs) at her age could do this none of that because that is the shame part Mm -hmm. and it is your children are all unique and yes, this child cannot do this, but bet you they can do other things much better. It is all different. And it is, that's the way life is. And if you do do that comparison, all it does is just create hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, not, you won't be regulated. That's the scientific way. I would just say you get hurt and you get angry. But the more scientific way is you become dis- dysregulated and then, or deregulated. And then that is that lasting memory is in there that I can't do this. And that seed will then grow. Mm-hmm. And then you won't develop. I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Me too. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I thought I thought I know quite a bit about executive function, but it's, it's a much bigger area. When people just say metacognition, it's just such a simple phrase. And it's such a small thing, isn't it? No, it's a very big thing. And there's lots of bits around that that we just take for granted. And that's the thing is, if it's not in the national curriculum, it's probably metacognition. And that's very simplifying. But you know that the things you need in life... If it's not in there, it's probably an executive function thing that they'll need, but it's not explicitly taught. But if you model how you do these things, how you organise, and also what you do when you can't, so like I've had a bad sleep because of this, mm-hmm. or what to do when you've done it wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's being vulnerable is really important. It is that showing that I make mistakes, and that's fine. It's a really big part of that. So thank you for coming on the show today. You've given me some links to share. So as always, I'll be putting those in the show notes. And I'll also be sharing Victoria's contact details so you can get hold of her and her organization. And you'll find the show notes on our website or wherever you listen to the podcast. So thank you for listening to the show. Please share the podcast with everyone you know. We are on various social media platforms as the Sendcast. So tag us and let everyone know about the podcast. And as always, if you're struggling to share progress, if your assessment process is too complicated it takes too long your children are just marked as below have a look at the b squared website or book a free online meeting so we can take you through our products we have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps of progress for pupils with scnd and if you're a school in england still confused by the engagement model or not sure about the pre-key stage standards or you're a school in wales and you've got the curriculum for wales please get in contact you can also find out about our online training read our blog watch our webinars and so much more it is all on the B Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me or my colleagues in the show notes. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sencast. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Bye.